On Wednesday morning, I dropped a friend early at the Wheaton train station so he could take the Metra into the loop where he works. And before he got out of the car, I asked him, so how's your work going? Well, actually, it's going fairly well for him, but here's what he said. He said, why is it that God would give me these gifts that I have in writing, and yet I have almost no time to do anything with them? Because he's got a demanding job and a demanding family. And why is it, he said, that God would give me a, a sales job when I told him I'm not that good at it and I didn't really want to do it? See, we all live, don't we, in this gap between the real-world reality of our daily work and our longing for a calling, our longing for something greater. Studs Terkel, the kind of Chicago fixture and curmudgeon, before he died, he, he wrote a landmark book called Working, and he interviewed hundreds of people about their work, and here's what he said when he concluded the project. He said, most people are looking for a calling, not a job. He said, most of us are like the assembly line worker whose job is too small for his spirit. Most jobs are not big enough for people. And it's into that very gap that I want to speak this morning. If I could offer you prophetic help from the Word of God, what I want to do is help you discern what is my calling. How could I get clear on that? How could I move closer to what God would want me to do with my daily labor? Could I narrow the gap? Well, before we get into that, I just want to make clear what calling is. It is a biblical idea. It is a Christian idea. And it is one of the most powerful Christian ideas. Would you look at Acts 20 there in your bulletin? And let's, let's start at verse 23. This is Paul speaking. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, The Holy Spirit tells me, in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life's worth nothing to me unless I use it. For what? Unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. That is the Christian teaching on calling. There is a work that is assigned you by the Lord Jesus. Now, that profoundly powerful idea can also be in the way it's often taught or understood, or mistaught, or misunderstood, one of the most damaging ideas. Because so often what happens is, either implicitly or explicitly, church leaders like me stand up and go, my calling's better than yours, right? We call ministry being a pastor or a missionary. But what, whatever you do with your daily life, that's not ministry, so it must be less than ministry, right? Have you felt that? drives me nuts. It's wrong. It's not Christian. It's not biblical. For 30 years, I made my living in publishing, and I loved it. And now I've made the last, my living the last three years working in the church. And sometimes people will stop me and ask, so what's it like to, to go into ministry? And if I have enough time and I have the relationship with them, I go, wait, wait, wait. I didn't go from not ministry to ministry. I went from publishing work to pastoral work. But still in ministry, right? Do you really want your daily labor to be thrown under the bus and demeaned in that way that God has given you to do? You shouldn't stand for it. 
So what I want to do today is help you get closer to the calling that God has given you. Jesus said, when I go back to heaven, you know what it's like? It's like a, servant, a master who leaves and leaves his servants assigned with various tasks. He gives us tasks, and they're not all just religious ones. I like this one in Exodus 31, where God says, the Lord said to Moses, look, I've specifically chosen Bezalel. Probably haven't heard about him for a while, have you? I've filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He's a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He's skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. And here's how God finishes. He's a master at every craft, exclamation point. God is gushing over this person. He's like, I'm a good HR manager, and I love this guy. He's got what it takes. Or how about Paul? He's writing a letter to the Romans, and he's doing it from the city of Corinth, and he's going, oh, by the way, one of the Christians here that I really like and is one of my friends, he sends greetings. He's Erastus, the city treasurer. He's in municipal accounting. Can I get a witness, Stephen Gautier? Amen. <laughs> so how do you find out what your calling is? What I want to offer you this morning is a simple tool, and it's a diagram there in your bulletin if you would turn to that. Um, this didn't come to me chiseled in stone from Mount Sinai. <laughs> this was a sketch I drew on the back of a napkin. But the reason I commend it to you is this. I think it draws out some very important biblical themes about the nature of calling that will help you get clear and also get clear on what's keeping me from more fully entering my calling. And I also think it's simple and will open up some profound conversations with you. So let's get into it. The first one is your deep gladness. Your deep gladness. This phrase comes from novelist Frederick Buechner, who says, the place where God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What is it that makes you glad? Well, us spiritual directors call these life-giving moments. It's like Eric Little says in the movie Chariots of Fire, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, what is it that when you do it, you feel God's pleasure, you feel alive? I've learned to watch for this as a pastor. When people start to talk a little faster, a little more energy in their voice, their hands start to move, their eyes light up, their eyebrows rise, because that is a moment where they're talking about or they're doing something that God has put in them to do. And so you have to start by attending, what did God put in me? Where do I light up? I'll tell you what that was for Paul. We, uh, Paul says, you know what? Uh, you, Peter, James, and John, you guys can hang out in sort of religion headquarters in Jerusalem with people who've spent their whole life steeped in the scriptures. That's meaningful to you. I see that you're called to do that. But you know what I'm called to do? The exact opposite. I want the, the furthest out pagans you can find me. I want the places where nobody's done anything with the gospel yet. That's what I want. And here's, what he, here's how he describes it in Romans 15, 20. This is his life-giving moment, his deep gladness. He says, my ambition's always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. Do You see how passionate he is about that? What are you passionate about? Maybe closing a deal. My twin brother has been in insurance a long time. He says, I can smell when money's on the table. <laughs> he can bring it in. Maybe your passion is, I love being with children when that light bulb goes on for them and they come alive in wonder and exploration. That's what I love to do. Maybe it's building a team for you. You're like, man, when I can get several people of very different temperament all working together on a common purpose, that energizes me. 
You need to know your deep gladness if you're going to discover your calling in the Lord. Now, let me pause. If this is the only circle that you have in your discernment process of what God may be calling you to do, what will happen to you? Let me suggest what will happen. You will have sky-high expectations on your work, and you will be chronically disappointed. I read an interesting blog post on Huffington Post, and the writer was asking this question, why is it that so many workers in the Gen Y generation are so unhappy with their work? Why are they so disappointed? And what she suggests, and you don't necessarily have to agree with this, is that that we're as baby boomers went after the American dream. I want to get ahead, and I don't care exactly how I do it. This younger generation, what she calls gypsies, Gen Y protagonists and special yuppies, (laughs) what she said is thereafter is their own personal dream. A life that's so grand and glorious and kind of a script around them that work will meet all my emotional needs and satisfy me at the deepest longings of my soul. Work can't do that. Jesus can do that. And so if this is your only circle for discerning God's calling for you, you will set up an idol and you will spend your life forever frustrated because God will not allow that idol to stand in your heart. Okay, now how does that balance? It balances out with the circle right next to it. Yeah, it is about your deep gladness, but it's also about the world's deep need. God puts you in places where you can bring benefit to others around you. It's called strategic job placement. One of our intercessors during Prayer 100 got a word from the Lord, and I've saved it until now. And just listen to what she intuited in prayer for us this February. She said, I've also had a word regarding those who are out of work in our congregation. Often I pray for people to find that perfect job for their gifts, talents, needs, and so on. Deep gladness. But God's been leading me to pray that they would find work locally, placed in a specific workplace for his purposes. World's deep need. A week later, I was led to pray for strategic job placement. I've been led to pray for God's kingdom to come in new jobs, jobs that go beyond the personal provision for the job seeker and into kingdom advancement. Could it be that one reason God still has you in a job that doesn't totally satisfy your deep gladness is that he's got you in a place where you can help to meet the world's deep need? Wouldn't that be meaningful to lean into that? One of the most profound scriptures, if I gave you Romans 15, 20 for the first circle, the scripture I want to give you for this circle is Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. This comes to God's people when through their own sin, they've been dragged off into exile by enemy armies, taken to a country where they are hated and marginalized. And you'd think that in that situation, they would want to undermine these hated people who have done this to them, right? But what does God give them instruction to do? Verse 4, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens, eat the food they produce. Multiply, don't dwindle away. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Do some of you have a calling to make this world a much better place? It needs it. It needs you to renew and redeem things. It needs you to restrain evil and corruption. 
I was, I was blessed by the story of, uh, I was reading about Perry Bigelow, who was a Christian and founded Bigelow Homes. Maybe you've seen those signs on some real estate developments. He did a big one out in Aurora. And thinking as a Christian, here's what he did. He said subdivisions are hugely influential in the way people live, and most subdivisions are terrible for building community, right? So here's what he said. He, he said, in my subdivisions, I'm going to build extra-wide sidewalks so people can cross and pass with each other and have strollers and all that. And I'm going to put bigger front porches on my homes so people actually can sit out there and greet their neighbor. And I'm going to put more common spaces where they can run into people and talk. And I'm going to build my subdivisions in such a way that there's actually workforce housing in and among the subdivision so that the cops and firefighters who save the lives of the people who live in that community can actually afford to live there. That's thinking like a Christian. That's making the world a better place. Some of you, you may be called to make the world a better place in a different way. You know, when we found this building, it was a wreck. It was an architectural gem, but you couldn't tell. The roof leaked like a sieve. We walked around, there were puddles standing on the floor everywhere. There was mold. There was asbestos. There was rodents. There was overgrown shrubbery. It was a blight on this side of Wheaton. And because you all gave generously millions of dollars, we were able to redeem this and make the community a better place right here. But you know what? Commercial bankers also played a part under God's call because they also invested millions of dollars in the mortgage for this project. And what they did was they said, this is a sacred trust. This is millions of dollars that our depositors have trusted to us. And we're going to take all that and we're going to give it to you, Church of the Resurrection, because we think you're going to do something good for our community with it. And we trust you that you're going to pay it back with some interest so that it grows and we can do even more good projects in our community. So, you know, we, we sometimes think, oh, commercial banking, that's not ministry, that's just a job. Man. No, it's ministry when done with a heart for the Lord. Now, what happens if this is your only circle? All you're thinking about, and sometimes I, I get this when I talk to people who are in challenging environments like urban, urban work, you know, among the homeless or whatever, and they're like, oh, I don't need gladness, I, I, I don't need money, oh, I, I just have this mission. You know what happens to you? you become kind of like morally righteous and, and, and you become like with a Messiah complex and you will burn out. Because God didn't design you to do your work without some degree of gladness and without an economic means to support it. So don't get hung up there. You need this circle, but you need it in balance with the others. Now let's move to our third circle, if you would. You need an economic engine. I hope this is not moving too fast right now, but work has to pay the bills. Now, some people, this is their only circle, right? All they think about with work is, how much am I getting paid? What's my bonus going to be? Uh, you, you've all met these people, right? They're the people at your workplace. If the, if the benchmark raise for the year was 3% and they got 2 or 2.5, two they are sulking, they are brooding because they're letting their salary tell them whether they have any worth. And they're obsessed with it. And it's a miserable way to live. And Christians call better and say, Jesus will tell you what you're worth. And so, therefore, though, what happens sometimes is Christians will swing all the way to the other side and go, you know what, I'm not, I don't even have to think about this. I'm just going to ignore this. I'm going to enter some fantasy land around finances. And it doesn't work. Now, here's what's freeing for some of you. This is going to be, I think, an important concept. There are two types of economic engines, not just one. The first type of economic engine is, is, 
is the money that is generated as you work in your deep gladness meeting the world's deep need. Paul had this type of economic engine in that sometimes when he labored on behalf of churches, some of the churches, some of the time, would send him a donation. And that's what you see in Philippians 4 when Paul says, hey, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. That was his small economic engine. That helped a little bit. But you know what his main economic engine? It wasn't something that happened as he did his deep gladness, meeting the world's deep need. It was something that he did so that he could do his deep gladness, meeting the world's deep need. We find that in Acts 18, where the Bible tells us that he moved in with Priscilla and Aquila because they made tents like he made tents. The Greek word is leather worker. What it meant was Paul was sitting up at night at 3 a.m. after preaching all day and cutting out big sheets of leather and then stitching them together by hand to create a mobile housing unit. He was the original prefab portable housing guy. Okay, so, and what does he say about that? Would you look in your bulletin there at, at Acts 20 in verse 33? He's saying to these people that he brought the gospel to, he says, I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. That wasn't what it was about for me. You know that these hands of mine, and he literally means these hands, have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. I made enough staying up late and doing the tent thing that I paid for my needs and some of the people who traveled with me. That's my main economic engine. Now think how freeing it would be if you saw that kind of job as part of your calling. Actors do it all the time. I meet actors and I go, hey, how are things going for you? They don't tell me, oh, I'm still waiting tables. You know what they light up about is? I'm auditioning for a new show. I'm really excited. We're going into rehearsals for this new show. That's their life. Their waiting on tables is just an economic engine that allows them to get where their deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And, you know, most of the actors I talk to, they're not bitter about that. They get that that's what you have to do. But I talk to a lot of Christians who are like, oh, I just have a job. I hate my job. It's just a job. I'm like, no, it's not. It's an economic engine that can release you to do your deep gladness where it meets the world's deep need. That is not a lesser than economic engine. It is a way that it can happen. You need to bring it in and see it as part of your calling. What would that do for you? Do you see what calling does for people? Do you see how it gives you nobility? God is working through you. Do you see how it gives you dignity? Do you see how it gives you purpose? Do you see how it gives you staying power? I want that for you. I want you to connect your work in your heart between what you're doing and what God's doing in this world. Later in this service, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and we're all going to say together, give us this day our daily bread. Now, how does God answer that prayer? Let's say that your daily bread today is going to Einstein right after church and getting a bagel. That's your daily bread. How did God answer your prayer and get you that bagel? Well, he called somebody in Monsanto Corporation's advertising department to write a radio spot about their Westbred line of seeds with the new winter wheat variety. And a farmer driving in western Kansas, listening on his pickup truck, heard that ad. And he planted winter wheat in his fields. 
and then he harvested it with a combine, and then God called a truck driver to carry all of that wheat to the Pillsbury flour mill, and I like to think that the truck driver was driving an international truck whose engine and transmission were engineered by res member Andrew Merrick, who was called by God to lead his team doing that. And then the flour got to a, a kitchen worker at Einstein Corporate who whipped it all together into bagels and ran it through a steam injection oven, which had broken down yesterday, but is back up working today because a part was overnighted to them from McMaster Car, where God called five different res members to work. So when you walk up to the counter and you say, I want my bagel sliced, toasted, and with cream cheese, God answered your prayer for daily bread by calling hundreds and hundreds of people to work in ways that they couldn't see the whole picture but was part of his work in this world. Do you want to enter into that sense of calling? Then here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to take this diagram and work it. I want you to think about it, and I want you to talk with somebody you trust, somebody with the gift of wisdom, and say, how am I doing? Could I get closer to that intersection of those circles? Is there something I'm missing? And is God now revealing something in my heart that is starting to become an idol? I've been so consumed with meeting my deep gladness, I couldn't think about anything else. And no wonder I'm chronically and bitterly disappointed. Or I've been thinking so missional, so it's all about the world. I don't need gladness, I don't need money, and I'm burning out. And I'm developing kind of a self-righteous messianic complex that doesn't do anybody any good? Or is my idol money? I can't hear what God might want to do with my life because I just think too much about money. The thought of even giving up one dollar of my salary to do something else slays me. May the Holy Spirit come and speak to us and bring repentance and clarity this morning that we might all be able to say, just like Paul did, my life's worth nothing to me unless I use it to finish the work that God has assigned me. Amen.